Hello, everyone. This is Jacob with Theology in Dialogue. Brandon Ambassino is here. Uh, he conducted uh, this week's interview with Father Martin, Father James Martin. Perhaps some of you have heard of him, seen him on Twitter. Um, so, hello, Brandon. Hi. How are you? Pretty good. Pretty How good. are you? Not bad. Not bad. Um, so I, I just wanted to get a little uh, introduction, get our listeners familiar with who you are. Maybe they've seen you with that political article with some other some other <laughs> writing that you do. Maybe you could uh, give a little background, how you got interested in theology, what attracted you to um, the subject, uh, what attracted you to this interview in particular, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, well, I'm Kay, so uh, I sort of have some skin in the game with this one. Um, Let's see. So a long time ago, uh, I went to Liberty University. Um, this was back when the late Jerry Falwell was alive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I was coming out there when I was 19. It wasn't the most gay-affirming environment. Sure. Um, but I found that it was still a really supportive environment to be me in, mm-hmm. even if mm-hmm. I had to sort of navigate that, you know? Yeah. So I was always sort of interested in building bridges of reconciliation um, between, uh, you know, communities that I think in the mainstream, like to everybody else looking in, wouldn't really sort of see eye to eye. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. I feel like just by virtue of, of me and where I was sort of placed in life, you know, my parents are evangelical, my best friends are evangelical. Um, I feel like the work I've been doing, even though I didn't have a name for it, mm-hmm. was sort of the work that Father Martin's talking about in yeah. his book. I should say, I, you know, I'm not, um, I, I, that was a very long time ago. My theology has changed yeah, sure. quite a bit now, and, you know, now I'm here at Villanova. You're Catholic now, right? I am Catholic, yeah. Yeah. I'm very happy to be. Imagine that. A gay yeah, Catholic Pope that Francis. doesn't want to leave the church. Yeah, exactly. And that's one of the things that comes out in this interview, I think, really well, is like, commitment to the church despite a sort of uh, a frustrated relationship on some issues and and um and uh yeah when when you and father martin were talking about um for example the 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 example of just showing up you know mm-hmm. being part of the church by virtue of your baptism yeah and oh, worshiping sure. jesus in the church right these right. these very very uh um uh fundamental issues of who is God, who is Christ and, and how does worship in the church play into that and, and, um, and not willing to leave. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And in my case, almost doing the opposite of leaving because I went yes. from like, you know, n- these non-denominational even evangelical spaces, you uh-huh, know, where uh-huh. the, the churches are named like a four letter noun and, um, you know, and, yes. and now, you know, I, I feel like I was more drawn to liturgy, to yes. creeds, yes. and I'm becoming, I feel like with a lot of my gay friends, it's gone the opposite way, like from mm-hmm. Catholicism mm-hmm. to just more sort of, you know, this mm-hmm. sort of nebulous spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, what, what attracted you to Catholicism? Like, how did you end up in like the big C Catholic church? Hmm. You know? So I always say C.S. Lewis was my gateway drug. Uh, yeah yeah, i started reading him um gk chesterton too i read his um, conversion 
uh, orthodoxy. And so I just felt like a, a seed was planted in mm-hmm. me. While I was at Liberty, actually, um, I was going to a Celtic Christian worship service, actually oh, wow. at a Baptist church down there. Oh, nice. So I was just sort of drawn. I mean, ever since I was 18, 19, I was drawn to liturgy. Because, you know, I didn't grow up, like, mm-hmm. with any of that. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just thought it was so beautiful. And I always, always had an interest in literature. Yeah. And so there, there's yeah. something just really literary about reciting the creeds. Yes, me. yeah, sure. Yeah. So you and and you have sp- you have you said you had some sort of uh, history with Father Martin. You've been yeah. reading his stuff or what? yeah, I read his stuff. I met him a while ago in D.C. at okay. like a religion writers conference or something. Um, and I call him like my my internet priest because you know every every time <laughs> yes. I have a problem or an issue or every time I get on a flight, I despise flying and. Every time I get on a flight, which seems like, you know, every other day now, yes. I always email him. I'm like, uh, please pray for me, you know. And he's, he's always like, you're fine. Just ignore the turbulence. <laughs> so, <laughs> I feel like we've had that, you know, yeah, relationship sure, sure. Um, for a while. So it was fun to, to sit down and just yeah. sort of talk for like an hour about this. Yes. Yeah. 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 Um, so one of the things that was interesting to me about the interview is that Father Martin shied away from taking strong theological or dogmatic positions on like non-traditional versus traditional forms of marriage, like within, within at least within Catholic teaching, you know. Yeah. So he takes a a really strong position on um, love and respect and compassion, which seems uh, fair. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and and sort of uh, one of the things he wants to do is he he wants to say you know this is like one tiny issue and I don't mean to minimize it I mean it's mm-hmm. a big issue to me right, sure. I can't marry Andy in a Catholic church that's a yeah. huge issue to me sure. but it's just one issue among like thousands of other mm-hmm. issues mm-hmm. so but what he's I think he's he's being strategic right in the book sure. he's he's wanting he's wanting to say before we even get to the theology before mm-hmm. we even get to you know uh, revisiting Catholic sexual ethics in light of, um, you know, an evolving anthropology. We have to be able to have a respectful discussion. And I see people uh, interacting with Father Jim every day on Twitter. And I can promise you that we are sometimes, it seems, light years away from any sort of compassionate meeting at a table. So he's just trying to say, listen, like step one might be debating the theology, but we're at step zero, which yeah, is just sure, sure. showing up and being friendly to each other. Yes. And so I think, you know, he got a lot of criticism from, from both sides of this thing that mm-hmm. said, you know, why didn't you talk about the theology? And I think that the right. his point is we're just not there yet. Yeah. So he's kind of trying to set the table for like productive conversations to actually. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, higher. there are still people, there are still bishops in the U.S. who just refuse to say the word gay. I mean, if you're a bishop in the U.S., and I hope you're mm-hmm. listening, but if you, and you can't bring yourself to use the word gay, and you have to use the word homosexual, I mean, number one, you're not... Uh, 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 come on. You know, and, and that's sort of his point, right? It's yes. like, we, we can't even agree about the word to use. Right. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh... On that note, I think everybody's maybe <laughs> ready, ready, no. <laughs> ready. Well, you know, I, I love them. They're, yeah. Well, I think I think we're ready for Father Jim now, right? Yes. Okay. Well, thank you, Brandon, and thank you so much for taking the time to do this interview. Uh, we appreciate your work on it, and uh, everybody listening, enjoy.
Hey, Father Martin. Good to be with you. Thanks. It's uh, it's good to meet. Um, so let's just dive right into this. Um, you mentioned in this book that you've been having these thoughts, you know, for a while, but there was an event that happened that really made you say, you know what, now's the time. Can you talk to me about that? Sure. So it's good to be with you, first of all. Uh, last year, um, as most people know, there were 49 people that were killed in a massacre at the Pulse nightclub, which was a largely gay um, nightclub in Orlando. And, um, you know, after an event like that, people express their sympathy publicly, public figures, politicians. And normally, bishops express their sympathy. Uh, for example, uh, you know, Hurricane Harvey, bishops came out and expressed sympathy. Um, some of the events in Charlottesville, uh, people expressed their sympathy, including the bishops. But uh, in Orlando, uh, very few bishops bothered to talk about their sympathy for the LGBT community. And even when they did, they didn't mention the words gay or LGBT. And it made me realize that even in death, LGBT people in the Catholic Church are largely invisible. And as a thought experiment, imagine if that massacre had happened in, say, a Methodist church or a Presbyterian church, God forbid, you would have every bishop in the country saying, we stand with our Methodist brothers and sisters, we stand with our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, they'd be going to Presbyterian and Methodist churches, et cetera, et cetera. So the fact that I saw none of that really made me realize that it was time to talk more publicly about um, my advocacy for LGBT Catholics. So you mentioned you didn't hear the word gay. Why is that significant? <laughs> you know, I, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know why it's significant or why it's so hard for bishops and some priests and, you know, some Catholic leaders to even use that word. If you go online and you type in the words, uh, unfortunately, you know, James Martin Gay or James Martin LGBT, one of the first things you will see is, I think, uh, big debates about whether or not we should even use those words. And uh, a lot of people who are on the, let's say, more traditionalist side in the Catholic Church prefer terms like same-sex attraction or afflicted with same-sex attraction or SSA. I'm sure you've heard those words. And they're... The defense is that using words like gay and LGBT identifies someone only by their sexual orientation and urges, which is absurd because that's exactly what same-sex attraction does. My uh, opinion is that, frankly, I think that a lot of the reason behind their not using the word gay and LGBT is simply because the LGBT community uses it itself, and they feel like it's kind of a form of caving. But it's terrible. I mean, people should be able to name themselves. And I'm not saying what name to use. I mean, there's, as you know, a million different acronyms. They're some of them very long and very hard to remember. But people have a right to name themselves. And, you know, as I say in my book, in this Building a Bridge book, if Pope Francis can use the word gay, so can everybody else. I mean, if Pope Francis, this 81-year-old Argentine Jesuit, can muster the courage to actually say the word gay, which he said in English, so can everybody else. It's, it's ridiculous, as far as I'm concerned. It just seems like a really easy way to build a bridge without compromising anything you believe. Well, that's a good point. And, and I think one of the reasons they don't do that is because they don't want to build a bridge. Because they do not want to, uh, in a sense, give any quarter uh, to this LGBT community that is, for them, other. And so part of that distancing, part of the the gap uh, is to not even reach out in that way. I mean, imagine if I came into this interview um, and, and you kept calling me Jimmy, right? Which actually some of my family calls <laughs> me. I might say, you know, I think for purposes of the interview, 
call me Jim or Father Jim, and you persisted in that, mm-hmm. people would hear that on the radio or on the podcast and say, why is, why is Brandon doing that? It's so disrespectful. It's the same thing. People continue to use those terms, same-sex attraction, same-sex affliction, all that. You know, in the face of all these people saying, please don't call us that. So I think it's just disrespectful and rude, period. (laughs) So, Building a Bridge, the subtitle is How the Catholic Church and the LGBT Community Can Enter into a Relationship of Respect, Compassion, and Sensitivity. And you do a great job defining these terms. So can you talk to me about these terms? Right. Well, uh, first of all, it's important to know that they come from the catechism. So for people who say this is not in line with the teaching of the church, well, you know, open up the catechism to a number, I think it's 2358. There are three uh, passages that talk about LGBT people called homosexuals in the catechism. And I wanted to use those virtues, which I think are actually really, I I imagine that some drafter of the catechism probably just, you know, out of his or her mind just came up with three words, but they're actually beautiful words. Respect, uh, compassion, sensitivity, they can be unpacked in different ways. And I also say that it goes both ways. It's not just the institutional church treating the LGBT community like that, but it's reciprocal. Now, the onus is on the institutional church, clearly, because they are the ones that have marginalized people. But, you know, in terms of just treating people with respect and dignity, it goes the other way, too. So in the book really unpacks each of those terms uh, on both sides, or I should say for both groups. Do you think, I mean, it's possible to engage in respect and compassion and sensitivity before even engaging in a theological debate, right? Absolutely. <laughs> just, just, right, I mean, we're not even there yet. I mean, most uh, bishops don't even really know LGBT people. I mean, they, they know them, but they're probably closeted, say, priests and sisters and lay people who don't feel comfortable being out with Uh, bishops, you know, because of uh, the bishop's uh, stance. So we're not even there yet talking about theological issues. We're we're at the stage of just dialogue and listening, and that's one way to dialogue. Uh, So if I came in and we were talking and I was totally disrespectful to you, how could we even have a conversation about difficult theological topics? So that's that's kind of the the first level, I think. Just, just treating people with those simple Christian virtues, I think, enables us to get to the next level, which is sort of more substantive conversation about different theological issues. Which is something I think we see Pope Francis doing with the concrete human encounter, and that's what is the basis of, of anything, really. <laughs> yeah, and he's, his, that was, that's one of the big uh, phrases of his papacy, as you said, encounter. Uh, and people really reject that. But that, that was Jesus' way of doing things. When he met people on the margins, people who felt they were on the margins, shall we say, the Samaritan woman, uh, Roman centurion, Zacchaeus, the tax collector, lepers, on and on and on, he encountered them, even though people of his time and even the disciples didn't want him to do that. And so, you know, I use the story of Zacchaeus from the Gospel of Luke, which I love, and in one of the great lines, which is a kind of throwaway, is the people grumbled when Jesus reached out to Zacchaeus. The same way they're grumbling today. It's the exact same thing. I mean, they're doing it online, but they're still grumbling. <laughs> so yeah, encounter is, it's, it's, it's scary for people. God forbid we should meet someone who's different than ourselves. We might have to think you know, in a new way or change or actually accept the fact that the Holy Spirit might be in this person. I will say, too, you know, encounter is tough, I think, for LGBT people, um, too. 
especially in churches. Um, I go to a Catholic church with my partner, um, Andy, and uh, I still always have this moment of decision, you know, when, when we pass the peace, when everybody greets each other. Because every other couple just hugs and kisses each other, and nobody makes a big deal of it. But I've never kissed Andy in church. And I've, I've recently started thinking about that. Will we be in church 10 years from now in front of our children? And during that part of the service, we just hug each other, um, give a handshake. And it's not that anyone has ever said anything to me, but nobody's gone out of the way to say, oh, just so you know, it would be okay. Not that they have to do that, but so encounter is a, is a difficult thing for us to do. I think just just the fact of showing up, <laughs> sitting in a church, it, I mean, it takes a lot of uh, faith. It does, and I always say that LGBT people have more faith than I think straight people <laughs> because of that. I mean, imagine um, you. What you've just described is really interesting, Brandon. You have internalized rejection already. Hmm. You don't need to even even be told that you're rejected in the church. You've internalized it, and that's very sad. And I think that's a lot of the people that uh, Jesus came into contact with did the same thing. I mean, think of like the woman with the hemorrhage, right? Who um, you know doesn't even feel um, worthy to kind of stand up and greet him. She reaches down and touches the hem of the garment or the Samaritan woman, right? Who, who comes to the well at noon in the heat of the day because she's, we think, because she's been married five times and she's probably embarrassed. Maybe people didn't know enough to tell her, you know, you're not welcome to come at the regular time when other women come. She comes because she's embarrassed and she's kind of internalized that. And that's very sad. So I do hope in 10 years you'll be able to kiss your partner or, you know, soon to be your husband. Why not? What's the, what's, what's the terrible thing? And, and think of all the people um, in church who, you know, have all sorts of other things on their conscience. They feel perfectly at home. So why shouldn't, why shouldn't a gay man feel perfectly at home in church? Hmm. So, yeah, it's, it's up to the, the institutional church, I think, to make you feel welcome. Because no one else, few people, I think, would, would feel the same way you do in church. Sort of rejected already. So that's why it's up to the church to reach out to you. That's what I think. And that's why I feel, you know, your word bridge is important because, I mean, it is a two-way street. And one thing I've been doing is just showing up and sitting there with Andy, not touching him, not flirting with him during church, just being there. Everybody gets it. We're not just like two bros who happen to, you know, find each other in the parking lot, come into the church. People get it. So I feel like that's... And, you know, it's funny because, you know, everybody's talking about resistance now. It's an important word because there's a lot going on. We, we do have to resist. But I think with social media, we have an image of what that looks like. But I feel like I've been resisting <laughs> homophobia in the church for years just by showing up, despite protests that maybe I shouldn't. That maybe you shouldn't. Oh, that you shouldn't show up. That's the protest. Right. Right. Well, I think, right, the question is, what form of resistance do you want to do? And mm-hmm. I think that's a very effective form of resistance, <laughs> and it's, it's very gentle. And I think, in a sense, the church responds better to that. You know, one of the difficulties with the book is that it, it does call on the LGBT community, as you, you know, are saying, to treat the, the group, the other group, the institutional church, with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And that's very difficult for people. Um, but I think, in my experience, that simply works better. You know, and so if you do want acceptance, you can do one of two things. Well, you can do many things, but 
you know, you could have a, you could have picketing outside the church, or you could, <laughs> you know, wear a rainbow sash, or you could, you know, really do something really elaborate in terms of, you know, declaring your love for him or walk up hand in hand in the communion aisle or something like that, which is, you know, people, people do those kinds of things. They do these kinds of public protests, right? But I think if you want actual change and acceptance, what you're doing just simply, you know, because of our culture in the United States, because of the Catholic Church, it just works better. So um, I was at a talk at Yale University and this guy stood up and he said that um, his son, he's probably in his mid-50s, his son has just come out and the local bishop is uh, sort of suspicious of, of LGBT people. So he wrote him an, an angry note you know, because the bishop had sort of made comments about uh, LGBT people in confirmations of all places. And he got an angry note back and that's went back and forth. Then he had a kind of conversion and he said, you know, this guy's my brother. So I wrote him a friendly note, he got a friendly note back. And he's been meeting with him, father of a gay man, a father of a gay boy, and the bishop. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and I, I always think of that story, and I say, now, all right, like, what's actually going to affect change and conversion? Mm-hmm. The father of the gay boy kind of protesting or throwing paint on the cathedral or standing up in the middle of a mass or, or challenging him, or this. And I have to say, just because of the way the church is, that, and I think what you're doing is... You know, it, 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 there is a time for protest and for um, prophecy, right? But what you're doing, I think, is just as prophetic. And I actually think it works. Yeah, I do too. I, I feel like sometimes the, the, <laughs> the way I think to, to win these discussions, debates, whatever, you know, I, I think the most effective thing is when, when I have people tell me, well, you actually can't be gay Christian. And I say, well, watch me doing it. Because you can't, I'm doing it. And yeah. as much as you don't like it, you can't do a thing about it. Yeah, here I am. I mean, you're Catholic, right? Right. You're baptized. So, yes. so the end. I mean, I, you know, you already are a Catholic. Right. And so this idea that you can't possibly be a, a, a gay Catholic or you, you can't be a gay Catholic in good standing, yes, you are. I mean... Uh, th- this idea also that uh, whatever you think about same-sex relations or same-sex marriage, that that is the greatest and only sin <laughs> that we look at these days is just stunning to me. I-, I just, I really have a hard time with that. And, you know, when I say that to people, they have a hard time processing that. You know, that that is elevated as the, certainly the LGBT community, and then their sexual morality within that is elevated as the only moral issue that we should look at, that should keep... Uh, someone like you out of church. But imagine probably sitting next to you is some businessman who doesn't pay a fair wage, right? Mm-hmm. Or someone next to you on the other side who's using birth control or someone behind you who's divorced or remarried without an annulment or mm-hmm. someone in front of you is cheating on his or her wife or, you know, someone else who doesn't believe in Laudato Si, which I always remind people is an encyclical, <laughs> right? But it's only you that's put under a microscope. I bet those other people don't feel internally rejected. Why is that? It's, and a lot of it's the way that we've had this conversation and what which voices have dominated you have that really great passage in the book where you talk about catholic organizations firing gay people because you know they're they're anti-gospel or something and and you say but we don't fire people when they pass homeless people and don't feed them no <laughs> and which would which is which is which did jesus actually call out right so um 
the, my theology professor, uh, my moral theology professor, Jim Keenan, uh, at Boston College used to say that in the Gospels, I found this very helpful, Jesus usually doesn't critique people who are weak but trying. He critiques people who are strong and not bothering. So if you think about, you know, like the, the rich man, Lazarus and Dives, who passes the poor guy outside of his house, or the Pharisees who don't bother to think that someone might need healing on the Sabbath, it's, it's people who are strong or rich or wealthy or in power who are not bothering. And his uh, interpretation, Jim Keenan's was, which I love, for Jesus in the gospel, sin was most, most often a failure to bother to love. Mm-hmm. Okay? So where are people being fired for that? I mean, where are people being fired for, as you say, you know, passing a homeless man or being cruel or being unforgiving? You know, and I, I brought this up and some people said, well, those aren't public acts. Those aren't scandalous. Yes, surely they are. If you work in an office and a guy is just mean or racist, right? There's a sin. Right? Do, we, do we fire them from Catholic institutions? No. It's, it's the only thing that seems to kind of be elevated is same-sex marriage. So it's, I think it's therefore discriminatory because that's the, we're the only group we're focusing on is gay people. So let me ask you why. I mean... Let me go back to this. We, we talked about it in the top of this interview, but why is that the one? Great question. Uh, that's a multi-part answer. Um, first of all, uh, homophobia. So in, in the two ways that that word is used. So actual fear. So homophobia is, means actually fear, as you know. Uh, fear of the LGBT person as the other. So the other, the person who's different, the person who's unlike us. And so their, their whole presence is, is uh, an affront to us. So we're afraid of them. Secondly, um, hatred. So that's the more colloquial use of homophobia. Then not, not only fear of the person, but they hate them. And that's rampant in the church, right? I mean, it's the same kind of bullying that people, that you know, young gay boys or I would assume lesbian girls get in the playground, right? Um, third, I think a... Uh, misinterpretation of what's important in the moral life and this elevation of LGBT issues as the only thing is really skewed and I think a lot of that has has to do with um, you know what the institutional church has focused on in the last 30 or 40 years right this has been elevated that way Um, yeah and I think um, uh, also we see this online a lot And I've talked to many psychologists and psychiatrists about this because I've been confronted online and in person with real rage, I mean, absolute rage. And I said to this psychiatrist friend of mine, where does that come from? You know what? I mean, it's one thing to kind of disagree and, you know, I disagree with people and they might disagree with what I'm saying. But the the sort of turning red in the face and screaming at me and the psychiatrist, not, uh, you know, alone, you know, said... It's their own complicated sexuality. And psychiatrists will tell us and psychologists that we're all on a continuum, we're all on a spectrum, right? And, uh, you know, there's bisexuality in, in most people in di- different degrees. And for some people who are afraid of their complex sexuality, this kind of stuff is just terribly threatening. So the idea that you would be confronted with the um, reality of homosexuality or bisexuality or even transgenderism, is frightening for people. And so they, rather than directing the anger internally, they direct it out at the person. 
And I know just for the record that a lot of people who are critiquing me online are self-professed. This is not um, my uh, sort of reading into it. This is they will say this on their websites: former gays. Hmm. So it's a lot of former gay people. And I would say that you know there's a lot of conflict going on. So it's sad because what happens is their own junk inside gets focused outwards and on people who are actually trying to live a more integrated life. So you mentioned former gay people, and this was a question I was going to bring up a little later, but let's you know go there. So um, I was actually raised uh, Pentecostal. I went to Liberty University, um, and you know I was. I, I sat, read about. I read about that. Okay, you know I sat under. Um, uh, he wouldn't say he was an ex-gay therapist, but I think the goal for the school um, it was a very similar goal. Um, and fast forward to all these years later, now the same people who are running ex-gay programs are saying um, orientation conversion is not possible. The goal is celibacy. So I wrote this piece a couple years ago, and it was probably a, a little more inflammatory than I would have written it now. But it was called Gay Celibacy is, is the New Ex-Gay. And it was like, you know, because I, I think one of the things that I've, I personally wrestle with, I know there's a lot of diversity within the LGBT Catholic um, gay community, you know. But one of the problems I have is I feel like when celibacy is used in the mouths of people who are anti-gay, it sort of is, it's a... It doesn't seem fair to me. Like, that's very different than a, than a priestly vow of celibacy. Yeah, it's not chosen. Celibacy in Catholic theology and in Christian theology, celibacy, not we're all called to chastity. Celibacy is supposed to be a gift. Or it's something that you choose. For the LGBT person, it's, uh, you know, in terms of the catechism and in terms of uh, many Catholic thinkers and Catholic leaders, it is uh, a requirement and, in a sense... It is seen by many LGBT people as an imposition, which is what it sounds like you feel it is. I I do. Mm -hmm. Maybe this is. Maybe I'm now confessing to you my sin of being angry with. <laughs> no, well, I, I would say this. One of the things that I've um, I've I've thought about a lot is the notion, and you know, we're in a theology department. The notion of uh, teachings being received. So, uh, and it's a tradition that I think most people don't know about because it hasn't been really talked about for the last thirty or forty years. Nor has conscience, really. Uh, but, you know, for a, briefly put, I mean, and I'm no theologian, but, you know, for a teaching to be really um, authoritative, it, it, it is expected that it will be received by the people of God, by the faithful. So you look at something like, say, the Assumption. So the Assumption is declared, and people accept that. People, they go to the Feast of the Assumption, they believe in the Assumption, it's, it's received. From what I can tell um, in the LGBT community, the teaching that um, LGBT people must be celibate their entire lives, not just you know before marriage, as it is for most people, but their entire lives, has not been received. Now, I say this and people go crazy, and <laughs> this is simply based on LGBT people that I speak to. Now, there are some that believe that. I would say it's a very small percentage of people, mm -hmm. right? But that's a simple fact. You can say that... They don't agree with it. I would say the teaching, therefore, has not been received by the community to which it was largely directed. 
And so the question is, you know, what do we do with that? Now, that's the kind of question, to, to circle back to your original um, question, that reflection, you know, what do we do with a teaching that has seemingly not been received by the community to which it was directed, is a theological question that bishops and LGBT people need to think about. That's what I'm saying. And before we can get to that kind of deep theological reflection, we have to start with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. And that's why the book is really baby steps. The book is not talking about those other, you know, that, that's a very complex question theologically. But that's where the sort of baby steps start. But it's, that's a real issue for people. Right, and I was reading some of the some people who were interacting critically with your book were saying, you know, he didn't he didn't you know broach theology at all, but it just seemed like that was you were saying, hey, we're not we we're not even there, we're not even at we're not even at being kind toward one another. No, we're not there yet. No, and, and the big critique was you didn't talk about that issue. You didn't talk right. about celibacy or right. chastity, um, and and the reason is it's it's not a book of moral theology. I'm not a moral theologian. I'm not a theologian at all. Uh, although I have my MDiv and THM, that's but you know that's that's pretty. That's like the basis for a, a priest. Uh, it's not a book of sexual ethics. It's certainly not a book of sexual ethics for the LGBT person, right? It's a book about dialogue and prayer. And you know, a lot of these reviewers, uh, they, as the old joke goes, they review the book that they wish that you had written. But I'm sorry, I didn't write that book. But you're right. You we you can't start at that deep level of. Um, reflection, right, uh, until you sort of establish just communications. I mean, if you walked into a room with some theologians, you, you can't just sit down and, you, how are you? You know, what's your name? Where are you from? How was your trip? Right? I read your book. That's really interesting. Do you know so-and-so? Did you, who did you study under? Right? I mean, that's kind of theology. You know, it's like the species, uh, how they interact. You need to do that. And we are not there yet. Because most, as I said, most bishops, they, as you said, they, they can barely even use the word gay. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're at the very first steps of this uh, dialogue and encounter. So this is a question that's become complicated in my mind over the years, um, especially since the Supreme Court decision. So, you know, when I started writing, I started at The Atlantic, I wrote that Liberty piece. Then I wrote this essay arguing that it wasn't necessarily homophobic to support traditional marriage between a man and a woman. As you can imagine, I got a lot of slack <laughs> for that. As you can imagine. For that right? one. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, somebody asked me recently, has your mind changed on that? And I said, yes and no. Um, no, because I still think if somebody has a deep-seated moral reservation about that, I, I allow them that freedom of conscience just as I ask them to do that to me. But I still think something has changed after the Supreme Court decision. I'm not sure what it is, but I think that adds a little bit more gray to my argument. I still think somebody can make the case that they're not homophobic, but they just don't support gay marriage. But I believe that case is a little more hard won now after that decision. I'm not sure why I believe that, but that's... Because it's the law of the land, right? I mean, is that what you're <laughs> right. saying? That it's, I, I think so, yeah. That in a sense, it's harder to oppose it. I, I mean, I would tend to agree with you because I would say that there, you could have some uh, hard and fast and legitimate and reasonable theological objections in terms of the sacramentality, in terms of uh, biblical uh, you know, uh, provenance, things like that. Sure. 
And even though you know we shouldn't read the Bible literally, and Catholics don't read the Bible literally, um, plug out I, your eye. Yeah, right. Yeah, thank <laughs> God we don't. Um, but I also think that for the most part. I do find that there is a very high correlation between people who are against that and people who are, in fact, homophobic. Mm-hmm. And so it's that whole hate the sin, love the sinner uh, argument. I know it's not exactly the same, mm-hmm. but it reminds me of that in a sense. People say, well, I can be against a gay marriage and not be homophobic. But then when you hear a lot of people, they sound pretty damn homophobic. <laughs> and I can, say, I can say hate the sin and love the sinner, but when you listen to them, you know, there's no sense of love at all. Right. Yeah, they never talk about... I sometimes... I'll meet people who will say that, and I'll say, well, what do your gay friends think? And there's just silence, because they don't know any. Or it's all former gays. Yeah. Right? And so, so, yes, I agree. I think that you can... Personally, I think that you can legitimately have non-homophobic, good theological reasons for opposing those things. But I often find that the people who actually do oppose those things are very homophobic. And that is easily discerned. I mean, just by the way they talk about LGBT people and the language they use and the snottiness they have and so yeah, it's, it's very, unfortunate. It's very snide. It and it's almost like, you know, when when you're when you're talking about this just now, I'm hearing, you know, when when people say, well, I'm not a homophobe, but it almost reminds me a little bit of when people say, I'm not racist, but and you just when somebody says that you just sort of grab the seat. Yeah, because... here here it comes. Here it comes. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, it's like saying someone's saying, I don't don't take this the wrong way, but dot dot dot. You know something <laughs> terrible is coming. You know, a lot of this really is fear. Uh, it's fear, as I said, of something different and something new. And uh, it's pretty it's pretty noticeable. Um, I think that what's changing the church more positively, though, is uh, Pope Francis, I think, has certainly changed the discussion, as you pointed out, in terms of his de- desire for encounter. But also the simple fact that, as, as you're experiencing, more and more people are out uh, and public about their gender identity. Uh, and that means that more and more uh, parishes have out gay people and, and even their partners. But more importantly, I think more and more families have gay sons and daughters and siblings and uh, grandchildren and nieces and nephews. And so these families bring into their parishes the hopes and desires of, of their family members who are LGBT. And so there's a real shift going on. Because even 10 years ago, I think about 10 years ago, which is fairly recently, doing something that you're doing in, in church, I think would be harder, certainly. And now it's a little more, okay, I'm okay, well, we're not comfortable with it, but we'll accept it. And, and this, I think, has a real change in the, in the life of the parish. Because eventually what's going to happen in your parish is that people will come, if they already haven't, to know you. So it won't just be this, this gay couple who sits in front of me or sits in the pew, two, th- three pews in front of me. It will be Brandon and, you said Andrew, right? Andy, yeah. Andy. It will be human beings that they know from a parish council or a food drive or RCIA or, or religious ed. So that's really what's going to change it. It is that encounter. And that's new, I think. So that's actually kind of exciting for me. because, And I think that one of the reasons that there's so much pushback is that people who oppose this realize that. They realize two things. They realize that this is happening and they're terrified. Mm -hmm. And they realize, I think, that some of the things that I'm talking about in the book in terms of Jesus are (laughs) correct. That he did, in fact. It's very hard to move away from the fact or deny the fact that Jesus reached out to people on the margins. It's very hard to deny that. And I think one of the 
things that makes people angry is that they can't deny it and it's staring them right in the face and it's a kind of cognitive dissonance. They, they want to feel that it's, it's bad, but they see Jesus and they just, it, it's just infuriating them. And I'm just articulating this for myself now. That's what's going on with a lot of these people. You know what's really interesting? I mean, speaking about like just lay Catholics and numbers, um, no, not the book of numbers, just the numbers of these Catholics. <laughs> well, that's good because I don't know very much about the book of numbers. So um, we'd be in trouble. It's like whenever I, you know, whenever I read some, you know, some of these conservative Catholic pundits who are sort of very, very staunchly opposed to all things homosexual, they sort of write as if they're unaware that a lot of Catholics actually support me and Andy getting married. Right. <laughs> and it's really interesting because, and this is something that, you know, I, people like Catholic ethicists point out a lot in their books. Like, uh, at some point, the ch- like theological teaching does have to come into contact with the shape of things on the ground. And in the U.S., <laughs> The shape of things on the ground is such that a lot of Catholics do support gay marriage. Yeah, I think that's true. The, the, there's two um, refinements of that, though. One is uh, that in other parts of the world, it's not. And so for the church to change on that would mean that, you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, <laughs> you would be, you'd probably be, you really probably would be run out of the church. Mm-hmm. I mean, run out of a, a, the physical church. You'd probably be... I mean, I lived in Kenya for two years. You'd probably be ejected or certainly made to feel like you weren't welcome. People would, I think, would be somewhat vocal. Uh, And the second thing is that for some people, you know, what the theologians say is different than what the church leaders would say, as we know. So there's a a, um, disconnect between that legitimate reflection, which is that theology should take into account the experience of people of God, right? And that the Holy Spirit is working in them. But... On some of these questions, it I think that uh, church leaders resist that. They resist that very notion, which is, in fact, sort of the reception of teaching, right? And there's there's resistance to that because it's all, it, a lot of it's from the top down. I mean, you take something without getting into a big discussion. I mean, look at Humanae Vitae. Hmm. Humanae Vitae is still in effect. And as far as I can tell, the large majority of Western Catholics have made their peace with that. And that, yet that church teaching has not changed. And that's a much older church teaching. I mean, in a sense, that's Humanity Vitae's 1968, and a lot of stuff we're talking about is you know, very new. I mean, people to reflect on LGBT stuff. So the question is, again, there's a disconnect between the theological world, uh, and as there sadly is, and you know, church leadership, you know, the Episcopacy. So I am planning my wedding. And uh, it's interesting. I've I've heard from you know w- one person in particular um, who who I met at Liberty. Um, this person's a uh, associated with the school um, with Liberty. Still, yeah. Right. Um, and they they you know I I posted the we got engaged in Disney World last Halloween. So I posted, which is apparently a big gay um, destination. Someone told me is that I, accurate? So, we go to Disney World once a month. I don't. Once a month. Yeah, we're like. Well, then, big nerds. at least for you, it's a big. For us, it's super. Is gay. it accurate to say that it's a it's a gay destination or not? I don't know. And okay. I was having uh, dinner at La Celia there 
um, a few months back. And a lesbian couple um, came up to us and they were like, you are the first gay couple we've seen here. They said, and she literally said this, she said, we see a lot of us, but we haven't seen any gay guys here together. Interesting. I was like, really? Because I feel like Disney is so gay. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. But, you know, we, we got, you know, we got engaged there. I posted the pictures on Facebook and then immediately, you know, my phone blows up and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, I have to call my parents, I, my sisters. So I, I get this text from this person at Liberty. Congratulations. You know, I can't go to the wedding, but, you know, we'll talk. And I just thought, but the way they were communicating it, it, it didn't seem like, you know, I can't go to the wedding because of my employment. It seemed like... You know I can't go to the wedding because of my beliefs about scripture. And, you know, I don't like using the 1990s phrase, what would Jesus do? Because we, we've just so, you know, misappropriated it to be like, what would Jesus not do? But I really did think in that moment, what would Jesus do? And I can't imagine, like, if, I, if Jesus was, you know, alive now. Hey, Jesus, you know, I'm having this wedding. Do you want to come? Please, you know, bring some wine. I, I can't imagine he'd say, you know, I can't do that because of my ethic. I mean, so I guess this is a, this is a long way of asking this very basic question. How should... Catholics respond when they're invited to gay weddings? That's a great question. You know, I always used to, I always like to put it in the context of a Catholic who's invited to another wedding outside of their religion. So how does a Catholic res respond to uh, a person who gets married by a justice of the peace? How does a Catholic respond to someone in their family who gets married to a Jewish person? How does a Catholic respond to someone? I mean, for me, the, the essential value is supporting your loved one. Right? And so going to the wedding of a person who's marrying a Jewish person does not mean that you don't believe in Jesus Christ anymore. Right? Or even if your son or daughter converts, let's say, to Judaism, right? you're not saying that. And yet again, with the LGBT person, it becomes this, this sort of line in the sand that you don't do it. And again, I have to say, why is that? Why is it so terrible to go to, an, to a gay wedding? But it is not terrible to go to a Jewish wedding. You know, let's say, seriously, if, you're, if your daughter, let's say if you decided to convert to Judaism and you married Andy, who was Jewish, right? Mm -hmm. um, your, your parents would probably be disappointed, I would assume, you know, or, or confused or whatever. But the idea that they couldn't go or would refuse to go, um, it's, it's very surprising to me. So I think Catholics need to see it in light of that, that it is a different tradition, that it is a different... Um, belief system that most Catholics are used to, but it's a support of somebody. It's, it's you know, it's, it's supporting the person that you love. So it's very sad to me that, that people still agonize over this and also that they're, in a sense, um, trapped. You know, you, you hear stories about people posting pictures online and other people losing their jobs and it's, it's very disturbing to me because, frankly, you know, most uh, LGBT weddings, gay weddings, we can say, are civil weddings because that's just the way it is. And so you're going to a civil affair. How is that? Why is that any yeah. worse, in a sense, to go to a Jewish wedding? I, I really, I have a very hard time with that. Because what you're saying is, it's worse to be a Christian and gay than it is to reject Jesus and be wow. straight. That's, that's the implication. Is that really what we're saying? And for a lot of 
a lot of Catholics and a lot of church leaders, they, I think they believe that. Because again, it is this elevation of the gay wedding as the worst of all possible public ceremonies. Just a side note here, because you know you mentioned parents. Um, four years ago, my parents would not have come to my wedding. Now, my parents who are still evangelical. My mom calls me with ideas for the wedding. She says, Brandon, I ran into your second grade teacher. I really hope she's on the final list. You really, she was just saying how much she loved it. And it's funny because this is where I think, you know, I think you're right about this building a bridge because I never retweeted any of the very sort of unintentionally insulting gay things my parents said. My parents wouldn't call me gay for a long time because, you know, they're, they're Pentecostal. They didn't want to sort of give Satan any foothold over me. So they refused to say it. But it was only because I didn't call them crazy. It was, I feel like they've sort of come around. And I really think it was because I just had to say, God, I have zero patience with this. I need you to give them grace through me. And I really think it, it's because I was able to build that bridge that now they're coming around. I don't know that their, their theology has changed, but I know that they're coming and, you know, walking me down the aisle. I think that's a beautiful story. And I think that certainly, and who knows if they would have come around, even if you had been, you know, more uh, sort of vocal about your displeasure about what they were doing. But you certainly made it, I would say you certainly made it easier hmm. for them to do that. You made it easier also, you know, they, I mean, there's so many things to think about in what you were saying. First of all, they may have had a, an opposition to LGBT people or gay marriage or gay sex or whatever. But you're not a category, you're Brandon. You're their son. And that's different. And that's part of the encounter. They, they love you, right? And by loving you, you introduce them to this world that they wouldn't have known or might have sort of pushed away. Um, and also, in a sense, by not being... Um, this is helpful for me to think about, too. By not being... Uh, vociferous or sort of pushing back, you allow them actually to save face. Because if it had been sort of ratcheted up, they would have had to say, well, all right, now, okay, even though he, even though he said those things, we're going to surmount them and come to the wedding. But you didn't. And so you made the bridge a lot easier. That's an interesting, um, it's helpful for me to think about it this way. You cleared a path on that bridge to make it easier. You didn't put any roadblocks in front of them. You didn't put any roadblocks of like, oh, those terrible things he said about me. I have to kind of get over that. You know, that's the actual, I mean, as you know, the Greek word scandalon, the stumbling block. So you kind of cleared a path. Uh, and you were also very patient. And you prayed for them. You know, you, you asked. And God does, did give them the grace to kind of come to see you. It's conversion, metanoia, right? I mean, it's, it's this conversion of mind and hearts. They see you in a different way. Um, which is, I think, what Jesus does. He invites people in his time to see people on the margins in a different way, to see Zacchaeus in a different way, to see the woman at the well in a different way, to see the Roman centurion in a different way. So I think that's beautiful. It's a great story. And that they can celebrate with you your love is beautiful. I mean, I would say not so much what would Jesus do, but what are your parents doing? And how could God not rejoice in that kind of reconciliation and bridge building? How could God not love that? You know, whatever you think about gay weddings, how could Jesus not take joy in something like you, like you just told me? 
So following up what you said about, you know, how should Catholics respond to the gay wedding invitation, how should Catholics like me respond when we invite someone to our wedding and they say something very hurtful? Probably the same, again, probably the same way that I would say that a Catholic should respond if you're marrying a Presbyterian and they say something hurtful. That, um, that, that people are imperfect, that people don't understand, uh, that as you said earlier, that they, well, if they say something hurtful, it, it can't be, it can't be good. I mean, if they say, I'm, I'm not coming and they make some polite excuse, that's probably the politest way. Mm-hmm. And maybe they aren't homophobic, but they just feel that it's not within their belief system to be able to do that. If they say something hurtful, I mean, we do the same thing that we do for anybody who says something hurtful, is which we pray for them, we try to understand them, we try to understand it's not about us, it's about them, and we try to forgive them. Uh, and it's sad. Have people said something hurtful things to you? I wouldn't say it was intentionally hurtful. I do probably hear it uh, in a strong way. Like if somebody says, I can't come to your wedding because, you know, I, because of my Christian ethics. Sure. I think, well, well, I have Christian ethics right. too. Like what, <laughs> what are you? Well, a part of it is also being patient with people that they may not have had the same kind of encounters that your parents had or that your friends have, that they just don't have that experience or that background. And that eventually they will come to understand uh, what you're doing. Uh, you know, you might imagine someone who is against um, someone marrying someone of a different race or color. If someone said, well, I don't agree with that, you would probably feel more pity for that person. There's probably be some anger, but let's say someone in your office, I mean, I know that wouldn't happen here at the theology department of Villanova, certainly, but <laughs> if someone in an office said to you, well, you know, I hear you're marrying that person from West Africa and I just cannot bring myself to go to the wedding. You would feel angry and probably insulted. You probably also would feel sorry for that person. Like, wow, in this day and age, that person is still racist? Where is that coming from? Hmm. So I, th- I think pity is probably a... You know, Jesus, when he meets people who don't understand things, he said his heart was moved with pity. Hmm. And... and also to always be open to those people changing because I think that happens a lot actually here's my last question open to people changing I think I talked with you about this this happened a year ago over the weekend because I got the Facebook notification that I was at this wedding it was a beautiful Catholic wedding a year ago in Texas with Andy and you know I, I, I had a feeling Andy would be you know Posing. And I just, it was such a beautiful wedding at this gorgeous church in, um, in Houston. And um, I just kept thinking, you know, I can't have that. And people might say, well, why is it important? To, why can't you do something civil? Well, because I, I believe in the sacrament of marriage. I, that's what I want to participate in. That's what I want to have. And it's important to me to sort of make that covenant before God with Andy. So I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people have asked me what, like you go to yoga, you can pray on your own. What, why, why are you sticking with the church? Why, in fact, why did you become Catholic as an adult? You know, you knew what was there. Why? In, in essence, they're saying, 
The church isn't going to come around to gay marriage, at least not in your lifetime. Why are you sticking with it? And I always think about that, you know, when Jesus is teaching crowds and everybody leaves him, and he says to his disciples, do you also want to go? And, you know, leave it to Peter, right? And he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? Yeah, it's, a great it's kind point. of like, I, we, we've learned that you are the Son of God. Right. You have the words of eternal life. No one else. And that's what I feel like I, I tell these people, you know? Like, I, I, I can't go anywhere else. I've, I, I've become convinced that Jesus is the Christ. Yeah. So... But, but people say, but, but the church. So what is your advice to, to people, who to gay people who have just come to realize the church is, is not going to budge on this issue, at least not in, you know? That's a great question. I like the way you put it. That's really, that's a great uh, analogy. Uh, but I would say to gay people something um, from, from the opposite point of view, uh, not sort of why I stay, but <laughs> I would say to people, you're part of the church. Why would you leave? In a sense, don't let anybody make you leave. It's your church. I mean, you know, yes. And the other thing is to elevate, again, to make, you know, LGBT marriage the only thing in the church. I, I mean, you know, you look at the church just in terms of the sacraments and, and the gospels and uh, Catholic social teaching and the mass and the Eucharist. Really, even though this is a big issue, and certainly a big issue for you, it's one of many things in the church, right? So right. I would say to focus on that one particular thing to the exclusion of everything else, you know, uh, for me, I think is really sort of um, giving that a centrality in the church that I don't think it needs to have in someone's life. Now, I'm, not, I'm saying this as someone who's a priest and a celibate man and everything, but the more important, um, I think, approach is to say, it's your church. I mean, why should you leave? Why should you feel pushed out? Okay, you don't agree with those, that particular issue, and you know you might, in your own conscience, you might decide to, you know, work for that or work for changing or work for more acceptance in some way. But you, you're baptized. I mean, period. You, Jesus Christ Himself called you into this church. So, by what stretch of the imagination would you want to leave? As you know, to whom else should we go? And I mean, I think that for a lot of LGBT people, it's a real call to be in the church right now and to help the church understand the experience of the LGBT person. That you yourself, if you think about it this way, you yourself are called into the church as Brandon to be Brandon, an LGBT person, a gay man in the church, and to be 11 in that way. So in a sense, I think the church loses a lot by people sort of exempting themselves. But usually, it's interesting, usually LGBT people say to me, not so much that they leave because of that issue, in my experience, is that they feel pushed out. That's usually how it's, it comes across to me. I feel like I'm being pushed out or I feel like I'm being rejected. And that's when I say, it's your church. I mean, don't let anyone tell you that it's not your church. You have every right, you have as much right to be in the church as Pope Francis, as the local bishop, and as I do, period. You just pull out your baptismal certificate. <laughs> A couple of months ago, I was at a um, uh, baptism at uh, the Church of St. Paul the Apostle, which is actually attached to our Jesuit community. We're right around the corner. And um, the bishop, uh, the bishop, the uh, priest 
folded the baptismal rite into the mass, which I sometimes don't like because it just makes the Sunday mass much longer. But uh, this one I really liked. And at the moment of baptism where he pronounced the formula, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Afterwards, he held the baby up in front of the church, as people do. And the organ boomed out that uh, Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. It was this huge organ uh, sort of music that came out. And it was very moving. And I thought, yes, this is, this, this is the first time I think in my 20 years as a priest, the whole kind of meaning of baptism came to me that this is like life changing for this child this is a new child has been welcomed into the church there's a new member of the church and it's it's this just kind of world historical moment and I sometimes say to gay people that happened to you that happened to you you know when you were received into the church that happened to people at their baptism so in a sense not to denigrate the issue because it's a very important issue to leave the church over gay marriage, you know, in the face of Jesus Christ himself calling you into the church. To me that, like I said, I'm saying this as a priest, so it might be different for someone who's getting married or someone who is married. I think there's just so much more to the faith. And, you know, if Jesus Christ came into this room and said, Brandon, I want you to be a Catholic, um, even with your disagreement with the church on gay marriage and said, let's go. You would go because it's Jesus. <laughs> well, actually, that's what happened. <laughs> Jesus has called you into the church. And so that's that's how I ask people to look at it. From less a kind of uh, sort of um, issue point of view, like I don't agree with these things, to a more personal call. As you say, to whom else should we go? So that's a great answer to the question. <laughs> Your answer is a good answer. To whom else should we go? <laughs> Jesus Christ himself has called you. Yeah. So, why leave? Yeah. Do not abandon yourselves to despair. No, why? I mean, why? <laughs> why? There's no good reason. I, I'm sure that Peter felt... Peter probably... <laughs> I mean, you think about Peter and Paul and all the discussions they had and all that stuff mm. about circumcision and, mm. you know, that line in one of Paul's letter where he said, I went to Peter and I told him to his face that he was wrong. I mean, it's just it's <laughs> shocking. He probably felt like, oh, what am I doing here? But he stayed because, you know, he remembered the call. He probably went back to the Sea of Galilee at, when Jesus calls him and says, I will make you fish for people on the miraculous catch of fish. And he remembered that. And that superseded any issues, important as they are. So I think it's about the call. Well, thank you very much, Father. You're really, welcome, Brandon. really appreciated this. You're welcome. My pleasure. It's been great to be with you. Thanks very much. Thank you. everybody we hope you enjoyed the episode and make sure to follow us on twitter at theo in dialogue and we now have a fully functioning website up at uh, www.theologyindialogue.org uh, you can go there and find uh, all of our podcasts um, we might be doing a little blogging and there's a contact form if you want to send us any questions, um, any comments, if you would uh, like us to answer something on the show or, uh, you know, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do that. 
Also, if you leave us a review on iTunes, that really helps us out with visibility and with uh, getting this to more people. So uh, we appreciate it. Thank you for listening. Until next time.